When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following is a presentation of Morning Drive Media. Welcome to the TNF Hotline on the Knapsack Files. Your calls, your voice, your thoughts, and your host, Ken Knapsack. Thank you, Matt and D. So happy to be with you here for the TNF Hotline October 2018 edition. Patreon supporters at level tier three or higher get access to the TNF Google Voice Hotline, and they can call in, leave a question, leave a comment. It's a thought starter for me. This is a, I love doing the show because it takes me to a lot of different places that I don't often talk about on the show. It makes me think about things that I haven't thought about in a while. It's a lot of fun. Plus... I get to hear your beautiful voices. I get to hear you. It's like you're you're helping me with the program. That's right. I said program. I say robot and program. And you're going to be all right with that. I don't say wash. I don't wash the clothes, though. I do wash them. All right. This already went to weird spots. Let's go to the phones. First call from our good friend, Zach. Hey, Ken. This is Zach out in Wisconsin. Uh... No, we've been talking a lot of baseball on uh, Twitch lately. Uh, baseball has actually been one thing that I've only just recently really gotten into. So I guess my question for you was, uh, it's one thing you found later in life that you found uh, you've gotten really gotten into. Thanks. Bye. Oh, Zach, that's a that's a deep question. What? What wasn't in my life before that is in my life now? What's something interest uh, interest that something that interests me that um, I didn't before? I mean, I guess I could say drinking, <laughs> uh, wine, uh, subsection of that topic, investing. This past year, finally, I was like, oh, I'm I'm old and failing. I better invest some of my little bit of uh, coin into stocks and bonds and annuities, and that's actually been really fun. I have an interest in that, but it's it's not going well, and it's a small amount. Um, but the, talking about baseball, the, the, we talk a lot about baseball here in the TNF hotline. It's something so, uh, important to my life over the course of, you know, the last 30 years I got into baseball about 10, 11 years old. Whew. So I understand what Zach's saying. And Zach, uh, you know, is talking about on, on Twitch when I stream, whether it is uh, Fortnite or Battlefront 2 or MLB The Show playing some baseball. We talk a lot about baseball. The baseball playoffs are going off. And Zach is uh, from Wisconsin. He's a Milwaukee Brewer fan. And I did just kind of assume the way he was talking about the Brewers on uh, my Twitch chat uh, room there that he was a lifelong fan. And he actually said, no, still a young man. But he's like, I'm just kind of getting into it. Really uh, got pulled into this sport, which I love to hear as a baseball fan. So there's things in life that, that, that do come along that pull you in. So I'm trying to think of something specific, uh, an interest, uh, a TV show, uh, you know, some little hobby. It comes and goes. Uh, cooking for me came a little bit. I've always been interested in it, but to do it, I don't do it a lot, but I like it. I'm very interested in it. Uh, a sport. I don't know. There's. I can't find the specific answer Zach might be uh, looking for or something similar to his, hey, I didn't like baseball. Now I do like baseball. But something that did begin to interest me a little bit later, and I wish it had come into play sooner in my life because it made me a more well-rounded normal. And what is normal? I don't know, but a normal functioning human, I think. And that is the idea of uh, being social. (laughs) I was a very quiet kid. I'm still a quiet kid. You could... Plop me in my room. I, I remember when I was in second grade specifically, uh, and I think that I had the room for a couple of years. But my bedroom, pretty good sized bedroom for a little second grade kid. And I used to love reading my GI Joe, choose your own adventure books, and like a little, I had a little couch in the room. And that couch stayed with my life all the way up through like high school. We finally got rid of it. It was a little, a little one of those 
foam couches, real thick foam, and then you pull it out, it folds out into a little bed, right? I slept on that for a long time and probably hurt my back too young. Um, but I had it. I remember when we first got it, and I was like in second grade, and I used to live, love sitting down, uh, reading the, the G.I. Joe Choose Your Own Adventure books or maybe some comics and just sitting in that room. Then I'd, I'd have a, I, my desk, I could go work on projects or whatever it was, and that kind of set the tone. That's something that's, you know, been in my life the whole time. But eventually, I moved to L.A., and, you know, I had friends, and my, I'm from a small home, my, my hometown's small, and then some of my friends went away to college, and in the years after, um, I didn't do, I wasn't social. I'm not talking about partying or going out to the bars or the clubs to drinks, just, just doing things, right? I, I still suffer from it, but it became an interest of mine later in life. Much like, hey, Zach's like, oh, I'm now interested in baseball. I became interested in, let's go do something. Let's get together. Let's host a barbecue. That came about when I lived in a house in Northridge. Me and my friends rented a house in Northridge. Uh, Joel and Dave and I got the house. Eventually, some of the the occupants changed, uh, but I I remained there to the end. And... It was a big backyard. We created this game ruckus I've mentioned here on the on the feed before, this little throwing darts at a Nerf football and a lemon game that we created. And we'd host ruckus tournaments. We got a, a barbecue grill. And then my friend Brian moved in after Dave had moved out. And Brian loved to grill things. He was from Texas. So we'd, we'd gather around. We'd grill carne asada and just hang out on the back porch. I had, a, I had a bench press machine out there on the back porch that uh, became more rusty and covered in spider webs than it was used. Um, but that ushered in this period of my time where I loved hosting things. I loved having people over, loved having people uh, buy, loved going out to do things. It takes a lot of effort, and sometimes that's why I don't do it as much, but it became a thing. It became um, something I still consider. I... I I, you know, hopefully one day, I don't know, the pipe dream exists, barely, would love to own my own house at some point in my life. Not, I don't know anything about renting, when, like owning a house or having my space. I, I have this, this apartment now that I'm grateful for, but, I, you know, I'd love to have a deck and a grill and to be able to invite people back over because it became a, a big interest. And I wish it kind of kicked in sooner. It didn't. I was opposed to it almost because I'm so stubborn at times and, and just so shy and not functional, social, socially awkward, social anxiety has been a factor in my life for a while. And so when that kicked in, it was palpable. I could feel that I enjoyed this. I could feel the energy off of it. I loved hosting little parties and would host uh, birthday parties with a lot of you know, groups of, uh, different groups of friends from different walks in my life, but I was the only connection between them, and it was a lot of fun bringing the sketch and improv kids, uh, the stand-up people, uh, the, the people from my security job, people I've known for 15 years, my hometown, come down to visit, all that kind of stuff. It was always a lot of fun, and and I remember thinking, if this had happened sooner, not that I could have, you know, thrown parties at my mom's house or something like that, or my mom and dad's house growing up, but, like, you know, just, it's part of a normal Healthy life. And again, what is normal? That's not what this is about. I think you understand what I mean. Um, I, I, was, I was shut away, and I missed out on a lot of things in my 20s. And this, by, this really started hitting in by 28. I always say, dude, you know, who you are at 20, 25, and 29, 30 is not who you'll be at 35, 40, etc. And I'm still learning that. And who I am now probably won't be who I am at 50. And it's not this dramatic super change, you know, uh, it's just this, you know, how you view the world, your confidence levels and, and how you deal with things and the pressures of things. Some things still get you, some things don't get you anymore, how you react. It's all, it all changes as it should, right? And that was one of the big changes is me becoming more social. And that's why I'm answering it in this question. Zach's like, hey, I became interested in baseball. I became interested in how to be social, how to plan events and, and how to get people Let's get four or five. And, and it's funny, I pulled off of that a little bit in the last couple of years. Some of that, I think uh, I can attest to, to getting out of uh, the day job into a creative industry where suddenly I was working with a lot of friends. So a lot of the people that I was hanging out with uh, after I'd leave the mall job and, and race over to Friday night to, to the comedy store patio or something with the schmo gang, 
And a lot of what you saw in the early days of the Schmoes was all, all of us getting together on a Thursday night as friends. And, oh, there's also a show there. And we all start working together. And then you're like, well, you're, you know, this is now work. It's fun, but it's now work. And I'm going to go to other things. So I've almost found a, a, a little bit of a reversal of the interest uh, where I'm not as social. And I'm trying to remember, oh, yeah, I got to keep doing this. Because then you go out and do it. I recently went on a taco crawl. Our, our, our friend Darina, who's been on the Knapsack Files, and uh, Joseph Grimshaw, uh, Nathan Hamill, uh, Joseph's wife uh, Sarah, all these all, all these great people um, met up Ellis for a while, and we all did this taco crawl and on the outskirts of downtown LA, and we all kind of had this like, oh, now this is fun, <laughs> this is different, this fills your soul up in a different way. It's easy to get isolated, especially in a big city. And again, I'm not saying, you know, we're putting on our fancy clothes and going out to the club. I'm just saying the human connection, the human connection, especially in this day, just, uh, day and age of social media where you're, we're all locked behind a Twitter handle or a Facebook feed. And, and, and that's not always a bad thing. I think there's been great changes and, and, I, and I have a career because of it, and I've talked about that before. I don't want to remix that, but it's very easy. It's very easy just to, to, to not... Invest. I recently did a, you know, one of my motivations with, with Ken videos was kind of a jokey take on this about, yeah, you have that friend you need to connect with and you need to call them and meet for drinks and they want to do the same thing, but really you both don't want to do it. And that's fine. And that's acceptable. You don't always have to do it. But, but I, I'm finding myself as I drift farther, farther away. Uh, and sometimes it's just an energy thing. You know, there'd be times we go out to the comedy store patio and it'd be like 11 PM and I was leaving my house to go meet Ellis and the boys it's a late night. It's okay if you move it up a little bit. And I've noticed over the years, it's moved up a little bit. Um, but it's not this skirting of responsibilities or anything like that. You know, let's party till three in the morning and sleep in the next day. I, that's not always a good thing. But it's it's putting in the effort, getting outside the walls, outside of the, the dread that social media can kind of bring in, the paranoia and depression that social media can kind of bring in, and then the isolation of just not being connected i guess with those around you as much um it, it's valuable to 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 remember to go out and that's why it's an interest of mine uh, i had a chance recently to see uh our, our friend of the show and my friend van william in concert closing night of his uh, first headlining tour a wonderful small little intimate rock and roll show at, at the at the beverly uh what was it the beverly theater i can't remember bootleg theater beverly that's what it was and me grace uh, Joseph and, and Sarah uh, Scrimshaw, uh, we, we all went out, had some drinks before, took a car over to the venue, listened to rock and roll, and went home. And it was just this one little like fun little, like, oh, yeah, it's good to not always have to feel like I have to record a, a four-center podcast with Joseph or um, even for Grace and I to not be locked into our routines. Uh, it, those routines are fun. And most of the nights I do want to sit at home and sip wine and watch gardening shows. Also an interest that's come late into my life. Um, But I think it's important. And it is an interest. And when it kicked in for me in my late 20s, it was like, ah, this makes me feel good. Makes me feel healthy. And it was an interest I did not have before that came later. And I'm very grateful. Next call. Hello, Ken. This is Andy from Dallas. It's almost towards the end of October. A lot is going on. The MLB playoffs are on right now. Um, the other day, I don't remember where you mentioned it, but you said that you under you only understood religion through a U2 song. So the other day, I put on their greatest hits, and I just lost myself in the music, I became Bono's, Bono's vocals. I became the sonically architecture that is the Edge's guitar. I don't know what's there, but I I lose myself in their music. So my question to you is, do you have a favorite U2 song? Or do you have an album that you go to? Or what's your favorite U2 era, the 80s or the 90s or the 2000s? Oh boy, Andy's calling in, talking about Major League Baseball playoffs, the World Series starting uh, this uh, time of this recording this week. Um, but we're not talking talking about that. We're talking about music, more specifically. We're talking about you too. Uh oh, 
Let the old guy with the greatest beard start talking about one of his favorite bands of all time. Here we go. This is why I love TNF Hotline. Your guys' thought starters put me down past. I don't get to talk about a lot. Over on the Patreon page, uh, I've got the KZOC Radio Playlist. This is something I do every month. I put a little Spotify playlist together, release it to all my Patreon supporters, and I usually write uh, what the 10 to 12, sometimes 15 songs mean to me. Uh, those those writings have gone from just me wanting to write like a sentence or two about the song to probably writing way too much. Um, uh, because of my uh, schedule and something else I'm working on right now, I think this month it's going to be, be an audio essay, so to speak. So once I get started on music, I admit, woo, the passion takes over. And Andy is talking about one of my favorite bands of all time, U2. And I know here in 2018 that might not be the hippest choice. That's right. It's old people music. That ain't true. That ain't true or not at all. Um, U2 has their place in music history. They earned it. They kept it. They reinvented their place. And they still have that potential even now. The last couple albums, Songs of Experience, Songs of Innocence, No Line on the Horizon, uh, How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb. I get it. Not some of their greatest work. Even some of the, the biggest hardcore U2 fans I know are like, all right. Some stuff's gone there. Some stuff's good. Uh, you know, maybe it's not the same. And that just happens, all right? It just happens to bands. And they've stuck together for all these years. They're still making music. I still think the potential is there. If McCartney's releasing an album at 76 and, and a good one to boot, you know, don't ever count out YouTube of creating a new song to change your life. But there definitely was a period of time where they were the band and one of the top bands. And then they went away. Bono literally saying on the last night of their uh, Rattle and Hum tour, it was 89, I believe the dates. It's been a while since I've talked about it, so you can correct me on the dates. Says we're going to go away and dream it all up. Uh, again, uh, and, and they go away for a bit. And this is, again, this is the most popular band in the world at the time, the late eighties, just, just doing all these things. And then they come back with Octune baby in 91 and they are now, uh, instead of the, uh, you know, salt of the earth kind of spiritual, uh, you know, hippy dippy dudes, they are leather and glasses and rock and roll stars leaning into what they had become. And I love that. I want my rock stars to be rock stars. That's why I'm such a big Oasis fan. Loud, drunk, and fighting. Check, check, check. Give me that. Give me that. And uh, Bono is is was a rock star and then leaned into it, like I said, and became even a bigger rock star. And used, used his position to both be one and parody being one and then get things done with that. And Andy's asking about this. And, and he also mentioned something that I've talked about Elsewhere, uh, about the Church of Bono is what I call it there. I was raised uh, Christian, still uh, still am, but um, I, I don't go to church. I don't, I'm not active uh, in any church. I haven't been for a very, very long time. And it, it was another conversation for another time. But some of it was I just it wasn't finding the true spiritual feeling of God and the pursuit of God and the attempt to understand God and any of those kind of big, deep things. I wasn't finding them in any church. But I was finding them in U2 music. I become a I become a, a Beatles fan first, uh, sixth grade. That was my obsession with the Beatles was big and and uh, moving music and everything, and it was good. But then my late twenties, when I was really really battling some stuff on my own here in L.A., uh, that's where I I really went from U2 being a band I liked when I was on radio and pop came out in '97 when I was on radio and. Uh, Oasis had released Be Here Now, and it was like this, which album's better? And like they're, they're both got their problems, but they both got their uh, their masterpieces. Um, you know, uh, I, I was a U2 fan, but I just, it wasn't as big. And then there was a documentary on VH1 of, oh gosh, what was it called? Road to Pop or something like that. It was one of, when VH1 was really just with those behind the musics and all that stuff. So I think it was like a VH1 behind the music, Road to Pop or something like that. And something started to click in. I was like, ah, I think I'm starting to get it. I'm starting to get what they could mean to me. And and when I moved to L.A., and then um, their uh, album, uh, was that 2001 now? Yeah, the album comes out, uh, the one that they played at, uh, uh, yeah, All That You Can't Leave Behind in 2000. And then they're at the Super Bowl post 9-11. All that stuff, that era. Great stuff. Different era of YouTube, but but great stuff. The modern era, so to speak, even though it's been almost 20 years. Um. 
that's when I, it wasn't like I rediscovered uh, YouTube. It's just, it was the right time for them to come to my life. And I found, I found, I found God in their music. I mean, it was there. Bono has said that a good U2 song is about love, desire, and the crisis of faith. And I think when they hit those marks, it's powerful stuff. It's powerful stuff. And there was this moment, and I can talk, I'll talk directly about this moment. There's a song, it's, and I'm going to list some of my favorite U2 songs here uh, in a bit. But one of them on the list, talk about is a song called 40. And it is a almost word-for-word adaptation, depending on which version of the Bible, of course, you consider that they're adapting it from. But it is... Uh, Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned and heard my cry. And it is them putting that song, uh, that psalm into song. And here they are, the biggest band in the 80s uh, at the time. Uh, and this is how they'd close their concerts. Is Bono singing the song and the entire crowd was singing hallelujah, Bono on his knees. I mean, powerful stuff, right? Powerful stuff. Uh, but I had, had been raised with this idea that uh, some people, when they were real popular, I heard, I heard in the church I was attending, and this isn't—I I have no problems with church or the church, to be clear. But sometimes we're humans. That's that's the thing to me. People is people, and you're all—we all get our agendas, we all get our things in our mind, we all get stubborn over things, or we all don't gravitate. And so I, I had grown up hearing when I was like 10, 11, 12, like. Oh, that popular band U2, it used to be a Christian band, and they turned away from from God. And that's not accurate. That's not accurate. And so flash forward to the early 2000s, I was attending a church here in uh, Granada Hills, California, trying to reconnect, battling depression like crazy, like crazy. And a guest, a guest pastor was in there speaking. Anyway, now he's speaking, he's speaking, whatever. And he talks about something, and he reads Psalm 40, and he goes into Psalm 40. And so I, I perk up because this is my favorite psalm because it's one of my favorite U2 songs, and I love it. And he and he's going through it, and at one point he says, man, this is such a, a, a beautiful song. I I wish this, why hasn't anyone turned this into a song? For a second I thought he was joking. For a second I thought he was like, oh, he clearly is maybe making a reference to U2, or, and then realized, no, he wasn't. It really upset me. And it was one of the final things where I was like, you know, I don't even know if God is in this building. <laughs> Some nice words, some nice thoughts are, but I don't know if God is. Because the biggest band in the world closed every one of their shows with an audience and them singing hallelujah. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned and heard my cry, and I'm like, I'd rather attend that figurative church than this literal one. Love, Desire, and the Crisis of Faith fuels the greatest U2 songs. It fuels some of the non-great U2 songs. Every band's got some great ones. So... That's what Andy is referencing and what it is specifically what I meant. During my darkest hour, you know, they say, uh, you know, if if we fail to praise the Lord, the rocks, the rocks will cry out. I'm paraphrasing, of course. And in my darkest hour, my darkest time, that's where I found my solace was within the sonic sounds as Andy said, of, of, of Edge and Bono and Larry Mullen Jr. and, and uh, Adam Clayton. Like, that's, that was my church for a while, and it kept me afloat. It kept me afloat, absolutely, 100%. On days where the depression was pulling me down, pulling me down to a dark pit, love, desire, and the crisis of faith, because all those things were battling with me, battling in my head. Career, yeah, but loneliness, love... Um, uh, desire and how you deal with desire uh, of all kind. And the crisis of this faith, because I've, I was raised away to, to believe in this hope and this light. And then if you don't have it, and, and, and I've talked about that on the depression episode of the Knapsack Files, which I recently re-released on the YouTube channel with uh, Dr. Gary Ventimiglia, look at depression. It's from 2014, but we go into a lot of things there. And, and, and we talk about like, especially if you're raised with any, and I'm just talking about, about, Judeo-Christianity, you're talking about any kind of religion that's supposed to be this this hope, this thing you latch onto. And sometimes when you're still battling the depressions, because a lot of times it is, you know, chemical and, and, and inherent and into your hard wiring, you feel even extra guilty. Well, I'm supposed to, uh, Jesus is the reason for this, so I'm supposed to be happy. And, and there's this, now it's this crisis of faith. And I felt that, I found that w- w- was being dealt with better within the, the verse, chorus, verse of a U2 song. So that said, that's what drew me in, Andy. That's where, I, in my mid-20s, I found this band, really, for the first time, even though I'd heard them and, and been in radio in the 90s when they were still the biggest band in the world. 
And I like pop. I like that album. And I like uh, Zerope. You asked about my favorite era of U2. Gosh, I think it will have to be the early 90s when they fully became the big, giant, loud rock stars that they already were. I do like a little bit of the Mono. The 2000 era is, is, is good. When they reapplied to be the biggest band in the world, as Bono said, I do like that. Um, but I think the 90s, man, the 90s, though, Joshua Tree. Um, Actoon Baby is actually my favorite album, followed by Joshua Tree. Uh, and and Zerope is underrated. The quick follow-up to Octane Baby, it mostly recorded while they were on the road at that amazing large tour. And I still to this day have never seen U2 live. Don't ask me why. I've had some chances. Goes back to that first that first topic that Zach brought up. And, and, and social, uh, sometimes I forget, oh, I should go out and see shows. It's fun. Plug into life, kids. Plug into life. Going to try to correct that soon before time runs out. So quickly, I don't want to get too much of it, but if you get me talking about music... Um, I can go and I can go and I can go, as you guys know. Here's some of my favorite U2 songs. I have... Uh, all right. Uh, I'm not going to sing. Uh, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I think that is the that is the preeminent love, desire, and crisis of faith. Still haven't found what I'm looking for. With or without you, streets have no name uh, for, from, from Joshua Tree. Right there with, with it in terms of just classics and powerful, but... Still haven't found what I'm looking for. And some of the live versions where they get the uh, the choirs singing along, which you can find that ver- one of the versions on Rattle and Hum, the kind of live album uh, that was released following that tour and everything, uh, it went 88. Um, it's it's absolutely spiritual. It should be in a church. You should, you should be part of a Sunday morning service. So there's that. I like from 2004's How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb, One Step Closer. Simple song. Hand still bleeding with the, hand, hand still bleeding with the prick of an old rose. One of my favorite uh, Bono lyrics. One step closer was uh, a song written after Bono and Noel Gallagher of my my favorite band Oasis. There, uh, or one of my favorite bands, uh, um, of course. Um, Bono and Noel Gallagher were talking about something, and uh, I think bon, uh, Noel's father was about to die or had died i don't know and and bono being a spiritual guy noel not necessarily being a spiritual guy in fact many songs about there being no god and all that kind of stuff um we're talking about it and talking about the afterlife and i think uh, i forget gosh i forget how the story goes but i think noel i think noel said well my, my dad's one step closer to knowing one step closer to knowing what the answer actually is about about Life After Death and God and everything. And so Bono wrote this song, One Step Closer. And it's a pretty simple song, pretty quite intimate song. And I loved it. But oddly enough, it's tied to this weird little breakup I had in a short, quick relationship in 2005 that, that ended, thankfully, quick, uh, but badly, uh, loudly, a lot of crying and screaming. And I drove away in a, ra- in a rainy night, 2005, drove away listening to the song on repeat. It just it just kind of happened to be on the CD player. I'll remember those. Um, and I just remember driving away, and this relationship had ended, and I'm glad it was. It was ended. But, you know, when you're, especially in your, in your 20s, you know, an end, end of things can be a little more scary than they actually are because you just haven't gone through them as much. And even though this was a short uh, relationship, I, I don't know, you know, am I ever going to find love again? I don't know. And where's my life going? And all these things. And as I drove away in the rain, this song that Bono wrote about Noel Gallagher's dad passing away and getting one step closer to knowing about God. Um, and this, that again, that line, you know, hand still bleeding with a perk of an old rose, like just, just, it just, it inspired me and soothed me. And every challenge in life, you get through it and you are one step closer to knowing what you're supposed to be or knowing what's next or knowing where you need to be. And that's something that connect with there. So that's a powerful song for me too. I told you guys, once you get to, I once I get tired, start talking about this rock and or roll. I don't stop. I don't stop going to, uh, tune baby. I like so cruel and until the end of the world. I mean, I like that whole album. Uh, and one is on there. Obviously one's great. And, uh, mysterious ways was one of the first U2 songs. I really, Remember liking on the radio back in, uh, you know, 91, 92, summer 91. It was big. Um, but so cruel. Song about uh, tortured love. And uh, you ask me to enter and then you make me crawl. And I can't keep going on. To, all right. So I, I told you guys I wouldn't sing. Uh, Until the End of the World is a song about uh, Judas turning on Jesus and asking for forgiveness and it's it is truly a song about love 
desire. There's some real sexual uh, innuendo and sexual-related lyrics in it, and The Crisis of Faith. And that is, to me, one of the best U2 songs, uh, what they do. It's not one of their biggest, even on one of their biggest albums. I wouldn't say it's one of their biggest, but, uh, but Judas Iscariot asking God, Jesus, forgiveness. It's pretty powerful stuff, and uh, I love that song a lot. Similar to Europa, which was the follow-up, it's kind of a numb, lemon, a lot of weird, little different stuff going on on that album. But I really love The Wanderer, which Johnny Cash does the vocals. And that, again, is another song, Love, Desire, and the Crisis of Faith. It is uh, um, a quirky, it's just boom, 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 boom. Boom, boom, boom. I went out walking with a Bible and a gun. Um, love that song. Love that song. And I, I actually wrote a, a weird movie script in, in, in early 2000s. Don't want to get into it, but I had a character called The Wanderer, and it was it was it was this character from this song had shown up, and it was this uh, uh, you know weird 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 little uh, story uh, that involved uh, a lot of uh, biblical themes in, in the real world and the wanderer was this character that showed up around the same time there's a b-side called slow dancing and there's a version with bono singing and there's a version with willie nelson singing as well and i love both versions slow dancing is uh is again a little less on the crisis of faith in it but it's definitely about love desire and just the crisis of love and desire uh so i love that one there from the pop album, which is underrated because it was it it was it tanked a little bit. It kind of showed up with a thud. It was like, what is this? U2's kind of changing again. They become the biggest band in the world, then they became the biggest rock stars in the world, and then the suddenly pop, they kind of went into this this trip hop stuff that was and they promised like our album's gonna be real trip hop like, and it was like, what what is what are they doing? That's not the U2 we love. And then pop comes out and it uh discotheques the first one, and it's just, and it's you know, where is the love, desire, and crisis of faith? Where is it? It's it's this, it's this it pop. It's pop, and that's what you two was commenting on. And there's some great stuff in there, though. You go back, and one of buried in that is I think is one of their finest songs, "If God Will Send His Angels," and I love that one too. Um, then uh, from the 2000s, all that you can't leave behind. I love "Walk On." Um, that's that's a great one. Uh, Stuck in a moment you can't get out of is another one. Go from that era, but um, in a little while. In a little while is a is a smaller U two song. In a little while, surely you'll be mine. Uh, I love that. It's a good simple, good simple love song. Good simple love song. Um, just like the sweetest thing they released. They had that. They had, I think it was a greatest hits compilation or something around this time. They released sweetest thing. Oh, oh the sweetest thing. Um, that had been a B-side that U2 fans like myself know, uh, knew about for years. And, and it was it, that song finally got its day and got a video. It was pretty funny. I like little smaller YouTube songs like that. A lot of their songs are big stadium rock, you know, spiritual anthems. I like it when they go a little small. Um, but going back to the big, uh, I love, I love from, uh, it is uh, on the album uh, 2009's, uh, no, uh, excuse me, 2009's uh, No Line on the Horizon. Uh, it is Moment of Surrender. And I do believe they performed that one on Saturday Night Live around that era. And that is, and this is why when people, I, I get it, overall, U2 changed or U2 not being as good as it once was. I, I understand those. I understand that. I understand. It's just the way pop culture works. But I will argue, uh, much like some later Simpsons episodes <laughs> that people overlook or forget or just don't watch because they think, oh, they hear the Simpsons is bad. Moment of Surrender is one of the, is a top 10 U2 song for me. Not just for me, but I think just empirically it is a top 10 U2 song. Moment of Surrender, it is a big spiritual anthem. Uh, and then closing out, and I could go on and on and on and on. Look what you started, Andy. Look what you started, Andy. Uh, but 40. Uh, absolutely, uh, the the reworking of Psalm 40 remains to this day one of my favorite YouTube songs. And then around the same era, it was on on Rattle and Hum uh, is Hawk Moon Two Six Nine. Hawk Moon Two Sixty Nine. Uh, either uh, the song was mixed allegedly two hundred sixty nine times. There's different stories. Bono loves telling the stories. Edge loves kind of going. Well, this is what actually happened. Uh, 
Love that one. Used to play that one on the radio a lot. Um, like the devil needs a rain. Um, Hawk Moon, I need your love. Boom, 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 boom. I need your love. I'm sorry. Sorry, everybody. I'm singing. I just love all these songs. I just love all these songs. I haven't had a chance to sit down and really listen to them all in a while. I think I'm going to need to do that right after I'm done recording. So those are some of my favorite U2 songs. If you're not a U2 fan and you're like, why did you just spend the last uh, 20 minutes talking about this, Ken? I apologize. I apologize, but this is what happens when you start talking to an old rock and roll DJ from the 90s. Man, I just want to talk about music and music and music and what it means and what it's about. Love it. I love it. So, Andy, thanks for that thought starter. I'm going to go listen to some U2 right after this recording. Hello, Ken, and hello, TNF listeners. This is Kai. So a lot of people are already celebrating Halloween. I am one of those people. So Ken, I wanted to ask you, what is the best Halloween costume you've ever had? And as an adult, how do you like to celebrate Halloween now? Thank you. Have a good day. I will have a good day, Kai. Kai's one of our uh, longtime uh, dedicated supporters here at the Knapsack Files and Force Center. So always happy to have him call in with a thought starter and talk about Halloween. It is the season. Oh, we are. Oh, boy. I just I just didn't grow up with Halloween. Didn't really grow up with it. Um, I had the uh, non-scary church equivalent version that I grew up with. Um, so, therefore, I didn't do a lot of trick-or-treating. I, think I, I don't think I really ever trick-or-treated. I didn't dress up a lot. I just didn't do it. And so that's translated to now where I have a little bit of a, just a malaise towards... Halloween. And, and, you know, like people I did last week, we talked about the scary movies and how I don't like scary movies and why and what they do to me. Uh, We talked about it even this week on Force Center. It came up with Jennifer Landa. She's kind of like me, like, nah, scary movies scare me. I'm not a huge fan of that. So it's uh, it always sucks um, for the people in my life who love Halloween. But uh, that's just the way it is. But I have dressed up and I'd say. My favorite all-time costume uh, that I dressed up uh, as, a, as a kid was as Pee Wee Herman. I did that two years in a row because I love Pee Wee Herman so much and Pee Wee's Playhouse and Pee Wee's Big Adventure. So fifth and sixth grade for Halloween and my birthdays, well, my mom uh, and I, and well, basically my mom, had put together this really cool, authentic Pee Wee Herman outfit. Uh, suit. We found an actual suit for me to wear. We found uh, the, 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 the shoes. The classic, the, the white uh, white shoes there, a little bow tie, had an oversized uh, toothbrush, like a novel. We went to a novelty store and picked up some stuff, and it was, you know, it wasn't pitch perfect. I w- wouldn't call myself a cosplayer by any means or any stretch of the imagination. But gosh, and I still had my little floppy haircut. I didn't really even do my hair. Now that I think about it, I'm like, why well, didn't even comb? I didn't comb my hair like Pee Wee. Just kind of went out with what I wore. That was silly. Um, but I loved it because it was real. It wasn't like off a rack at a at a Kmart peewee costume with mask. It was me. It was me, and it was authentic, and I loved it. And peewee was uh, uh, what they did on the Playhouse, and then peewee's big adventure was uh, oddly enough a big influence <laughs> on my career. And going to the Groundlings and going up to the attic where I got to go one time and knowing and seeing some peewee stuff up there, um, knowing that Paul Rubens had been on that stage doing peewee uh, in, in the beginning was was very something I will cherish forever. Um, so that's my favorite costume as a kid. I think uh, I think I remember one Halloween when I was like real little, like three or four. I went like uh, I went like as Joseph from Joseph and Mary, Jesus's you know Earth parents. <laughs> and that was a pretty good costume too. It might have been more realistic than the Pee Wee one. They get little little sandals, little biblical sandals. Um, as an adult, well. I've dressed up once as an adult, and it is pretty awesome because at the time, Halloween 2009, at the time, I was like, I was trying to be a little more social, see the first topic of, you know, I like doing this, I like being social, it's Halloween, people do this, let's go to a Halloween party dressed up as someone. So me and my my friend Lou, Lou Santini, friend of the show here, 
we he dressed up as he think he dressed up as Kid Rock or something. I don't know. And I went as Rowdy Roddy Piper. And there's there's pictures of it if you dig through my Facebook page all the way back in 2009. Man, coming up on like 10 years ago, almost nine years ago now. Um, and it was again authentic. And it I have the hot rod shirt, uh, the black uh, shirt with the red fiery hot rod on it. I had the uh, arm tape and I had a kilt and. Uh, it was hard to find the exact Roddy wore a lot of kilts over over the course of his career, but I found one that it's actually authentic. And it was around his I don't know early '90s run when he had come back, his Intercontinental title run, the one at WrestleMania where where Bret Hart defeated him. So it was around that time, and he it was a specific. Uh, specific uh, kilt uh, clan. I forget the clan. Uh, I think it's the Macintosh clan. It might be because my friend Jay, Whiskey Fist Macintosh, was like, oh, that's my clan, I think. Um, but it was authentic, and I, and I wore my combat boots, but I had, and I even got the knee pads and all that stuff, and it was authentic. And at the time, 2009, Roddy Piper was just like, you know, one of my favorite wrestlers and personalities, and it was just kind of fun, and, and I wasn't seeing a lot of people doing that, and it was different. So it was uh, October 2009. Lo and behold, out of nowhere, January 2009, that is when I met Rod at the Hollywood Improv and my friend, uh, as a police officer in full uniform, showed up on stage and gave him a, an award. And and then Rod, I got to work with Rod on two fronts, in the stand-up comedy world through the Schmoes No Live Comedy Show. You can go to my YouTube fa- page and find me in this very costume I've been talking about on stage as Roddy Piper. And he comes up on stage and I'm so nervous. It's almost so hard for me to watch because I'm so nervous. See me pacing. I can't do the voices. Uh, he's playing along with me and I'm like, I can't do it. I'm so nervous. Um, and then a few months later, May 2010, I got to be in a wrestling ring with him and work with him through MPW. And gosh, I went, just a few months earlier, Dressed as him, no idea that I'd, I'd meet Rod, get to know Rod a little bit, get to be punched by Rod, get to be on a comedy stage with Rod, get to take a microphone from him in the wrestling ring, uh, all those cool things. And, of course, Rod uh, unfortunately passed away in 2015, left quite a legacy, especially the latter part of his life where he really worked at giving back to the industry and f- connecting with the new industry and stand-up comedy. And, and uh, Rod had a very interesting career, controversial career at times, but his last few years of his life, man, he really gave back and really loved and loved people. It was so nice and so open and so giving. And was aware of who he was and what that meant to people, and he gave them that. And, and, and never forget seeing that up close and personal several times. So that Halloween costume, the only one I really dressed up as as an adult, means a lot. And I still have it all. still have that kilt. Uh, wore it to a ring before, as Tex Tunney, all that kind of stuff, and uh, wore it on stage that night. I'll never forget. I'll never forget it. So if you watch that YouTube clip, look it up, Ken Napsock and Roddy Piper. I forget what the title is. It's one of my older videos I've posted. Uh, again, this is like February 2010, I believe. So there was a little where Room 5, this is where we used to do the comedy shows every week, and it was uh, the Schmoes No Live comedy show. And uh, I hid in the back. I hid in the side. There wasn't really like a green room. There's a little side by the bar. Comics could kind of mill about. And Rod's there. And, you know, I had met him briefly before. But, you know, you're nervous. So I had planned. And all the comics, a lot of comics are wrestling fans. And so a lot of people are talking about it. People knew Rod was there, right? He's standing right there. People are seeing it. And a lot of people, you know, it was advertised. So a lot of people, I had friends there from the wrestling world. And this comedy where people knew, hey, Roddy Piper's there. He was going to come up on stage and do something. So unbeknownst to anyone other than Christian Harloff and I believe Mark Ellis and my friend Paul, Lethal Logan X, um, who was in the audience, I slipped into this little janitor's closet. It was right there and closed the door. And I said, I got to change into something. And I pull out of the bag the whole costume, the Halloween costume from just a couple months earlier. And I slip it on and I'm tying my shoes and I'm hoping that no one walks in and, and blows the surprise because Rod, Rod had no idea. So I come out and I'm standing behind Rowdy Rowdy Piper. He's he's in, he was in his little jean jacket, I think at the time, or leather jacket. I think he was in his leather jacket that he used to always wear. I think with the same one that that Ronda Rousey uh, now has or wore when she first showed up in WWE. Anyways, uh, I am sitting there and I'm nervous as all hell. I mean, I think other than like officiating in a wedding, I think I've been this nervous. And I kind of got to get to stage because they call my name. You know, come to the stage now, it was kind of knapsack. And 
I have to literally brush by Rod to get up on stage. So I just kind of tap him on the shoulder and I say, uh, excuse me, Rod, I got it. I got it. That, that's me. And he kind of goes, oh, oh, and he used to talk in a real, when he's off, when he's not being Roddy, Roddy Piper, he used to have this little like low, low growl. You can hear it in some of the podcasts he would do. He was like, oh, I'm uh, sorry. And he just turns around and he sees me dressed as him. And I don't look at him. I just, I just go past him. And he just goes, oh, uh, 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 oh, yeah. And I, and it made me feel comfortable. And I get up on stage and, and the, the 2009 is a little different. It's a little different in terms of technology. Not everyone's whipping out their phones to film easily and in HD video on your uh, Apple watches and all this stuff. And even though we used to tape the shows, they didn't run the camera all the time, which I was a little upset with to find out after the show. But luckily, um, I, I, I was able to get one clip. They, they started running it after I came to stage. So the clip that's on YouTube uh, it's cut. I think I forget how I, my outro is maybe not on there or not. I can't remember that part, but the intro's not on there, which always bugged me because it was one of my, one of my best moments in comedy. I take to the stage and the crowd and 70 people packed in this room for 40 people. And they all see me dressed as hot rod and they all know he's standing right there and they all start laughing. But in that kind of like, Oh no, laughing kind of way. And, um, clapping and i just look at the crowd and i have this pissed off look on my face and i and i just go man of all the nights to choose to dress like this this is the night i choose i've been telling the the bartender all night been flirting with her telling her that i was at wrestlemania six and it's hard to do that when the guy who was actually at wrestlemania six fighting bad news brown is right here in the crowd and the crowd's laughing and everything so i start I had nothing really planned, and I was going to go into just my normal stand-up routine, I guess. I can't remember. And out of the corner of my eye, I see uh, Hot Rod start walking up on stage. And that was completely not planned. So I got him, in a way, surprised, dressed as Rod. And then Christian and Ellis and everyone got me uh, by telling Rod to go on stage and Rod wanted to go on right away. And I guess he wanted to go on stage and he looks over and he kind of, you know, he, he, Rod was very respectful of stand up comedy, very respectful of it. And you know, he knows cause pro wrestling has its things you can or cannot do and things you shouldn't do and all that kind of stuff. So Rod, I guess turned to, to maybe Harloff or Steve Simone and, and goes, can I, can I go on stage? Would that be okay? And they're like, Oh, please do, please do. So what happens from there? Uh, we go and we reenact uh, a Piper's pit. He pretends to be Andre the Giant, all those things. If you haven't seen the video, check it out on my YouTube channel. Um, all that was not planned, which is another reason. As much as I love improv and don't plan things, uh, it made me so nervous. So nervous. I was so lost in it. Uh, but all that stemmed from that Halloween costume. It would not have been possible. Kai, who asked this question, that would not have been possible if I had not decided to dress up for Halloween in October of 2009, as the great hot rod, Rowdy Roddy Piper. Uh, hey, Ken. Uh, this is Jeff Saunders, a.k.a. Scribbler1974, on, on the discords and other places. Um, I just wanted to call in and, uh, and well, first of all, just uh, just uh, say thank you. Uh, you are uh, incredibly open and engaging and um You've uh, you've created a, a fan uh, a fan community here that uh, that always feels like a safe place and a welcoming place and uh, in this day and age uh, that's a rarity so uh, definitely can't thank you enough for for doing all you do for for all of your uh, your fan community um, but on to my question uh, one of one of the things that that always uh, uh, that I always find in- interesting is when you talk about your your uh, your wrestling time, and uh, so that's kind of what my my question goes with. I've I've been on and off wrestling fan all my life, and uh, uh, I just I think it's it's so cool that that you you know did that. And um, I was just uh, uh, was wondering if there was ever any moment uh, where you were I don't know maybe cutting a promo or wrestling a match or, or maybe a, a move you did where you realized and it clicked, you know, this is no longer a dream. I'm actually a professional wrestler. 
just kind of wondering if there's any kind of moment that stands out like that. And this, uh, and one more little question, and this may be the same thing. Was there ever like a, a wrestling move or, or something that you did and, and you were surprised that you were able to pull it off? Uh, but, uh, anyway, that, that's my questions. Uh, keep on doing all the good stuff you do, uh, and we'll keep on living. Uh, we'll keep on listening to you. Uh, love you, dude. Thanks again. Bye. Well, I love you too, Scribbler. That's right. I love hearing that stuff. You know what? It's weird. I, 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 I try to, these calls that come in, I do try to make them short. I tell the listeners to keep them clear and concise. And, and Scribbler had a great, uh, great call there that I wanted to put all of it there. Not because he's saying nice things about me. I appreciate them. But I, I want it to kind of be a little bit of an advertisement for what's going on over there in the Knapsack Files Discord server, which springs out of the Patreon page. Um, and all it takes is the lowest level, you know, $1 a month you get in. And I know that sounds like an advertisement, but but this is what's going on over there. We have daily conversations. We have community. We have a personal help desk. If you yourself aren't feeling good, got something going on in your life, uh, you're feeling low, feeling depressed, got a medical issue, just want to talk, want to vent, uh, we, you can go into that chat channel and talk. And, and you can go have, uh, if you got to want to promote yourself, we have, uh, we have a channel called I Have This Thing. And you put your stuff in there and... And because of this and because of what's going on on uh, when I stream on Twitch, I don't do it as much as I'd like and I don't do it to the level I'd like um, due to some tech problems. But um, we have, uh, as I take a deep breath to get through it, uh, we, we have, a, we have fo- formed a little community that I did not expect uh, when I started this, uh, particularly when I started the Knapsack Files in 2013, but particularly when I launched uh, the Patreon um uh, you know, you look at it as from the outside is is uh, uh, we you know so it's financial support for what I'm doing for what I'm creating for the content I'm putting out there and it has become much more than that in this direct to consumer era um, and what Scribbler's talking about and and that that love we all feel over there it's a real thing it's a tight knit group now and and uh, that's where a lot of these calls come from and I appreciate Jeff saying the the kind words uh, it means a lot so. Talking about pro wrestling, we were talk- talking about Roddy Roddy Piper, and I've talked about it some spots. I think I've talked about it on some of the Patreon-only shows a little more than I have on the regular Napsack Files feed, but I definitely talked about my time in pro wrestling, and and it's even, well, I don't want to say continuing. It pops back up every now and then. I just was on uh, the MPW show a couple week, uh, weekends ago and got to go in the ring. So Jeff was talking about that, and and, and I love what Jeff is, is asking here. Say, hey, you know, he's been a wrestling fan his whole life. I was a wrestling fan most of my life. Um we all have goals and dreams and things we set out to do is going back to when you're five or six years old, or maybe even now you form a new goal and dream. And sometimes you get to experience those dreams and other times you don't just part of life, just part of life. Things happen. Things don't happen. Things don't happen because of what you do or don't do. Things don't happen because of outside pressures or situations or things you can't control. It's just part of living. Jeff says, Hey, We'll keep on living. We'll keep on listening. Yeah, we'll keep on living. But pro wrestling, I used to joke pro wrestling was the only dream of mine that ever came true. Now, I was never really a pro wrestler. I was a pro wrestling manager. And then I also worked behind the scenes uh, producing booking stuff for a small fed. My time in pro wrestling, though it stretched a very long time going back to 2001, it is a, it is a dip in the waters compared to other people out there like my... Um, you know, our friend Jay Washington, my friend the Greek god Papadon, Frankie Kazarian, a lot of people like that, and including a lot of the ones that I've worked with in MPW over the years. But make no mistake, I, I was in it. I was in it. I've been in a ring with Roddy Piper. I've been punched by Roddy Piper. So we've talked about that. But what Jeff is is focusing on is, is something that, that uh, I sometimes take for granted, but I forget those moments. I was a kid when I first became enthralled with professional wrestling, and this isn't about that. If you're not a pro wrestling fan... That's not a problem. But as a kid, I became enthralled with it, and I wanted to do it. I wanted to figure it out what it was, and I'm not much of an athlete. And I learned that because I wanted to be a baseball player and got cut from the baseball team and realized, ah, I might not be a baseball player. I understand baseball maybe more than other people, but I, I can't play it. I'm definitely not an athlete. I'm, I'm wheezing trying to get a full breath here today. I've been, I've been recording so many shows today. Um, so... I didn't, after a while, I, re, I mean, I was really, I was looking at wrestling schools, me and my friend Joel in high school, we wanted it, we, we formed our little wrestling company in the front yard of his house, 
um, stupid, like not even backyard wrestling. Like it was, it was pretend front yard wrestling, but it was a lot of fun. We were all about characters and filmed it and we had a lot of fun with it. The Napomo Wrestling Federation lives, ma'am. And uh, at one point, though, you kind of realize, ah, this is probably isn't something I'm actually going to pursue, uh, though I do enjoy working out. You know, I'm not going to uh, be the big intimidating physical presence that at the time you thought you had to be. Now you could be a lot of different sizes and be in pro wrestling successfully. Well, different back then. I had been told by some medical professionals growing up that I still had some growing to do and I'd probably hit six feet. And uh, well, no, didn't really hit six feet. Um, I scrape it if I stretch, but I don't. So, yeah, my friend Joel was 6'2, he's a little taller. So, you know, at one point it was like, well, I can talk and I love being um, entertaining in that way and stand up comedy and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm interested in that. Maybe I should be a manager like Bobby the Brain Heenan, Jimmy Hart, JJ Dillon, Paul Ellery, and all these kind of big managers of the day. So, that became a dream. So flash forward, yes, to 2001 when I begin my pro wrestling career and uh, manage phenomenal Phil Lander uh, and all those kind of things. And I was doing it. And I had a short time and then the Fed closed and that was kind of it. I didn't pursue it after that. And then 2010, we start up again. And even though I'd always had my foot around wrestling there, 2010, it was like the time we did it monthly. And that was when you started. I started to say joke, but it was true. This was the only thing that kind of came true. I didn't go kick field goals for the Miami Dolphins. I didn't uh, become the starting catcher for the New York Yankees. I didn't make it to the weekend update desk for Saturday Night Live. But being involved in pro wrestling and being a pro wrestling manager, that didn't, that was something I wanted to do. So it meant something that I was doing it. And what's interesting about pro wrestling here is uh, you if you watch the big stuff, the WWE, WCW back in the day, some NWA, Ring of Honor, anything you watch now, Lucha Underground, anything that's on TV, uh, it is it is larger than life. It is big. And you look at all the money that goes into the WWE performances. That is the big leagues for sure. But the line between the big leagues and independent pro wrestling is very thin. And that can be taken for granted. It's it's if if you're outside looking in, you might look at a, a movie like The Wrestler, which is so realistic it's a documentary, and you see, and that's about someone who used to wrestle in front of you know twenty thousand people in a sold out crowd, the WWE equivalent, and he's wrestling in front of a hundred people in a in a rec center or a couple thousand people at a bigger indie show, and, and you might you might see them as two different things, you know. Uh, and there's definitely weekend uh, warriors and weekend wrestlers and people that are just doing it for fun. Uh, we have a lot of that right now up at Millennium Pro Wrestling. It is a student-based federation now. It wasn't uh, so much back in 2010 and definitely not back in 2001 when people like uh, Adam Pierce and Christopher Daniels and Frankie Kazarian and Samoa Joe and Spanky, uh, the Super Dragon, Loki, those are the people that wrestled for us back in the day there. Um, and almost uh, this guy named John Cena was booked on the main event in the first show and had to pull out. So MPW's um, changed from that to now it is you want to learn pro wrestling, maybe get some confidence, get in shape, wrestle a match or two. That's what we're doing. And, it, and it's cool in that regard. But you might, for the outside looking in, it looks different, right? There's WWE, and then while well, you're wrestling with uh, in a rec center with basketball hoops behind you in the, in the pictures, and you might see an old, uh, older wrestling star, someone who was released by the WWE, and you might think, oh, how the mighty have fallen. And, and, and sometimes wrestling has a sad angle to it where people hang on a little bit too long. But the dividing line is small. And yes, there's Japan, and now there's a lot of bigger, you know, you're seeing Ring of Honor and the show, the all-in show, the super show, the independent super show that happened, all that stuff. Yeah, there's, there's definitely levels, and, and there's money to be made, especially if traveling, especially if you go to Japan, all that kind of stuff. But it's... It's still the same thing. It's still the same thing. It's a squared circle. It's performers telling a story in front of the crowd. And if you get a magazine like Pro Wrestling Illustrated and you look at their PWI top 500 list of wrestlers, a large percentage of those wrestlers listed, they're wrestling every weekend in those rec centers. They're not wrestling for the WWE. Uh, One day they might, and one day maybe they did. So... All that to say, what's the point of that? All that to say, I looked around 
and seeing what I was doing. MPW used to run sh- shows inside of a, a bar and grill chain called Yankee Doodles out here in Simi Valley. It's no longer there. And we lost that venue. And we had to move to a, a Simi Valley Boys and Girls Club. And we would draw 300, 400 people at times. And we'd draw 50 people at times. And it would be very easy for me, especially someone who looks, you know, looks down upon myself uh, too, too much, to look around and, and, and not realize that I had achieved a goal, not just a dream, but I achieved a goal. I was doing it. I was in pro wrestling. Got in there somehow, you know. And so there was a moment. Uh, I, in my only official match I ever wrestled in, which was not much wrestling, I'm not an athlete. So Jeff asked about any particular move. Just two weeks ago, I delivered a stunner to a wrestler named Peter Avalon, who's who's known around the Indies, especially here in SoCal. And it was a stunner, a stone-cold stunner that Steve Austin does. And it was the worst stunner in the history of pro wrestling. I think there's video of it out there. I'm going to try to destroy it. It's bad. I'm not an athlete. I don't have the control over every inch of my body like these athletes do, especially pro wrestlers. You have to almost control everything down to a fingertip to get it right. And I do not have that control. So there's not a particular move to Jeff's specific question there that made me think I'm a wrestler, but there was the moment that I, uh, I realized, Oh, I've, I've actually accomplished the goal I set out to do and how powerful that was, was the one match I was in. It was the end of a two year long feud. Me as my character, Tex Tunney, the manager, the last scion of the, of the great Southern promoters. And, and I had my stable, the territory Kings feuded with, uh, Lethal Logan X, my friend Paul, uh, we had a long run and feud. I'd bring bad guys in to destroy them. All this, we fought back and forth. Then ended up with this fine story of me getting in the ring. And, and that was the moment I had to wrestle this hardcore match so I didn't have to have athletic skill. I could just hit things. Um, so I whipped him with a belt, and he he hit me with a kendo stick. I hit him with a kendo stick. He then hits, comes back, hits me with a trash can, hits me with a kendo stick. Then he puts me through the table. And that's Jeff's asking a lot of questions. It was that moment. On the day that my uh, beloved uncle had passed away, driving into the, the venue, my uncle Nick passed away. I got the call I was, as I was on the freeway to the wrestling show, and, and I, I needed to go on. I needed to do this. He was a big fan of Nikolai Volkov growing up and used to talk about wrestling with me. I needed to do this. I needed to honor him in some way. And so we had that match. And... Uh, I got put on a table. The table had broke right before Paul put me on it. Uh, so it was a weird angle. And Paul got up on the turnbuckle. This also meant now he was going to, the plan was for him to always, always for him to jump off the turnbuckle onto me on the table, put me through the table. But the table, it was over gimmicked. Um, so someone had broke one of the support barriers. And so it was at an angle. So now I was three feet lower than I was supposed to be. So he's already close to 15 feet in the air. Now we're close to 20 feet in the air. He's jumping on me. You know, it seems like that. It's probably six feet, but uh, there it seems like a, a, a lifetime of uh, a big distance. And I'm looking up, and I'm selling, selling the injuries. And I don't have to sell hard because it, being hit with a kendo stick, not fun. The welts are welting up on my back. And I'm looking up, and I'm looking up at one of my best friends in the whole wide world, Climbing up onto the turnbuckle, looking down on me, his eyes to my eyes. Again, it it seems close to 20 feet, and he leaps. And it's all slow motion, but it's also as fast as it possibly could be. And he leaps, does like a little swanton bomb that he does, which means he kind of leaps forward but but flips over so that he he hits me with uh, his back. And if it goes right, he hits me kind of in the, the chest, and I and I'm breaking I'm breaking all the kayfabe rules here. I'm to lean up an inch or two so that when he hits me, uh, you know, keep my arms kind of straight, lean up. He hits me and absorbs a little bit of the impact of me going into the table, and then the table, if it's done white right, breaks in two, and uh, the match is over. He pins me, and I'm watching him get up there. And I'm watching him take his first step and I'm watching him leap. And I'm thinking to myself, and he, he had hit me with this move once before in the ring. Uh, and then there's a picture. I'm in a gray suit. I've posted that kind of picture before in social media. And there's a great shot someone took of it. It's like midair. He's like floating above me, getting ready to la- crash down on me. But this time on a table on a much farther distance and a more direct hit. I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm doing it. This is it. This is real. I'm not a WrestleMania. 
I'm here right now, and it is just as real. And he hits me, boom, I go to the table. Uh, he covers me for the pin. Uh, we're both crying because it's an emotional moment. He knew my uncle passed away, and, and this is, you know, we're, we're best of friends. Ref counts to three. The crowd is, you know, cheering for my death, cheering for my destruction. And that was like, all right, this happened. This is real. Then I used to send the results into Pro Wrestling Illustrated, and about a month later, get the magazine, and there it is. In the results section, MPW uh, 512-2012 at the Simi Valley Boys and Girls Club, and it lists the results. And there it says, uh, Lethal Logan X in bold defeated Tex Tunney in bold, and I'm paraphrasing exactly, but Tex Tunney's in bold, in a hardcore match after Lethal Logan X had earned the right to face him by beating these two wrestlers, Topher Cash and, and Omar Slam Duncan or whatever it was at the time. And that, that, Jeff, to your question is when I realized a dream had come true because I grew up seven, eight, nine years old, getting into pro wrestling. By the time 10, 11, 12, when I've got my allowance and I'm not buying comic books as much anymore, uh, Star Wars figures, I was buying and subscribing to Pro Wrestling Illustrated. And in the back is the results. And I don't know if, I don't know if they're in there as much, but it used to be a thing, right? Because WWE had the TV shows on the weekends, but it also do house shows. So you'd see all the house shows during the month, you know, uh, in Altoona barbarian defeated Haku. Like you just see it. And so that, that was, I checked those every month as a kid. And so here it was, and this magazine, I think hit stands about June, but it was our May show. And there it is. The name text honey in all bold and an official pro wrestling illustrated documented match card. Like, that was as real as it got. That was a moment where I felt I actually accomplished something. Yeah, I've done a lot of other things and will hopefully do more. There's those little moments, and for some of you, it might be something else. It might be a getting married, something you didn't think would happen. It might be having a kid. It might be a graduation. It might be something you did. It might be you deciding to go back to school in your 30s and learn a new trade. It, it, it might be one of those things, but we all have those moments where you go, ah, oh, man. I thought about doing this. I went out and did it, and I accomplished it. And that's powerful, and that is powerful. And I think pro wrestling has a lot of those lessons buried into it, and that was mine. That was a big life lesson for me. So, Jeff, I appreciate you being a fan of the show, and I appreciate you calling in, and I appreciate all of you out there calling in and being part or just listening and being part of the little family we got going here in the Knapsack Files. Small but mighty. I get it. There's other big podcasts out there. As they say in local news, we realize there's a lot of news choices you have. Thanks for choosing us, but thank you for choosing the Napsuck Files podcast feed. Appreciate it. And I do have to do a shout-out to my high-tier supporters over on Patreon.com slash Files. We got Jason Humphreys, the home. We got Pagnetti, Pags as we call him around those uh, this joint. We got Alex Merritt. You can follow him at Marriott Alex. Uh, we got Kai, Kai Thatch, called in today. Follow him at uh, Kyvian. Uh, Kyle Gerbrandt. Zach Anderson, he called in as well. Follow him at the White Off 52. Donald Long, the amazing web, Jonas Berger, and Corey Morissette. Thank you for the general Veers picture. Uh, Graham Bell, Kyle Harlow, David Triana out there in Orlando. Catch his stuff. Go to DMT uh, 1196. Uh, uh, excuse me, DMT 1196. Uh, and then the uh, executive producer supporters, it's David Ham. Uh, that's DJ Snacks, Thomas Risling, Sir Thomas Sittal, Paul, Lethal Logan X. Yeah. Yeah, he supports me, even though he defeated me in the ring. Matthew Simon, Bedore, my Fortnite coach. Jacob at Star Wars Legends Con. We got Nos Lack. We got Matthew Thompson. Check him out at TMP Media Productions. Always doing some cool stuff. And Tamor Butta uh, at Tamor uh, ZB. Uh, please check him out. T A I M U R Z B. Follow him as well. All right. That's a special edition. I really like this edition of the TNF Hotline. I'm sorry, I went off on some things I haven't talked about in a long time. All right, I'm going to listen to some YouTube music. We'll see you all next time here on the Knapsack Files Hotline on the Knapsack Files podcast feed.